0: Welcome everyone. Hi, welcome to my podcast, the real life heroines journey podcast, where I get to speak to real life heroines. And these are women who have answered some sort of call, which is usually a call to make a change to step into something bigger than where they've been before. And they might go kicking and screaming, but they go and that's what makes them heroines. And the journey that subsequently takes place is what evolves them and grows them into bigger selves than when they started out. And the real life heroine that I get to speak with this morning is Margot Walsh. Margo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Susanna. It's an honor and a privilege
1: and you have helped me along my journey in so many ways you have
0: no idea. So thank you for bringing this whole idea to life. You are welcome. And how much fun it has been to accompany you on pieces of your journey, talk about an honor. And I think before we get into talking about your journey, because so much of the work that you do in helping others is about telling their story. And today is gonna be about telling your story. But before we go there, could you just explain? So, what is this? Is your business of ten years? What is Main Works? Main Works
1: is my business that I started in disarray and have worked every single day since its inception on March twenty sixth, two thousand eleven. So. 10 years in, um, with only a couple of family vacations um, because of weddings or re- obligatory things, I've worked really hard to develop this business. And what the business is, it's a staffing company for people in recovery from substance use disorder and re-entry from jail and prison. And in Maine, those populations are always very closely associated. And I'll talk about that later. But what we have tried to do is bring people from their place of Transition into the world of employment, and then in 2017, my sister and I started a nonprofit called Maine Recovery Fund, um, and that really is the, um, the the air behind the sale of Maine Works, basically saying, "And now that you're working, and now that you're committed to this life, how can we help you?" So Maine Works is the company that I own. And Maine Recovery Fund is the 501c3 nonprofit that swims along next to it, helping address challenges and obstacles that people face as they try to build their life through meaningful employment.
0: Okay. And as I remember, when you talk about starting out in disarray, that early on, you discovered these things. I mean, you wanted to help people who were coming out of prison, but then- and you found them a job perhaps, but then you realize, oh my gosh, they have no place to stay. They don't have good shoes. They don't have work boots. And so how was your, just briefly 10 years ago or nine years ago, what would your early morning have looked like?
1: Susanna, I think women that start businesses usually do so out of a sense of urgency. Um, it's, It's rarely um, it's rarely out of a place of, oh, I'd like to do this. So you can have a hobby and a skill that you develop, or you can have a sense of absolute desperation to be self-reliant, which is my case. And so that was really what the fuel behind works was originally. And so I, I'm also in recovery and I'd love to talk about that later because it's really important to my story, but I was volunteering and I saw people were, you know, really struggling with that moment you know, as I was of transitioning in their life into something else, something bigger, something greater. And so I think that the most important part of the early part of my business was that I was so self-reliant and that I would get up every single morning and literally drive to the jail where I identified these group of people that were in these pre-employment workforce programs that were not well supported institutionally. And I would take them out for the day and put them at a job site and then bring them home in the evening. And so that was the essence of Mainworks. But I did it all by myself. <clears throat> I found the guys and I found the jobs and I found the way to pay them and pay payroll taxes. And I don't know how to run a business which became clear over the years. Thankfully, I found someone to help me but I really just needed to put these things together because I could see the need for jobs and I could see the need for workers. So I thought I could put those together and make that engine go. I'm also a recruiter by profession, so I was able to draw on some of my professional skills, um, but I used to work as a recruiter in the world of investment banking. It's very different than placing very 20-year-old
0: inmates out into the construction fields. Right, and, and just because I want to get to that story of you being in investment banking, your origin story, so to speak, but before we leave the the company, so to speak, um, 12,200 rides to work, 3,000 bus passes, 650 warm jackets, 1,300 work boots, and it's probably more than that now, which is on the recovery, main website. Yeah. Those statistics is what, over the past 10 years, you and Elaine have made happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: it's a, It's a privilege to be able to to do that, but we, we really needed to address the issues in real time. And the one thing that I refused was to ever buy anybody used merchandise because there's nothing that says desperate more than handing someone, someone else's old coat, for example. So before my sister came along, I was handing that money out the window of my minivan <laughs> and uh, that was not sustainable, but it was my commitment to not give people recycled merchandise. So I used to go and, you know, just paw through, you know, the, the sale rack at Walmart. And then I finally talked my way into the manager at Walmart, bringing me into the back to show me where they have um, returned merchandise that's unsalable but brand new so that we didn't have to give out old socks and old boots and so then when we started this 501c3 we were able to raise the money and raise awareness around this issue that you know people starting out need everything as you suggested Susanna thank you
0: yes and then this reminds me of also your core philosophy about how you respect these people and you know not wanting to give them a used coat and that they deserve what's good and in order to do with their life, what they want to do to get a start, a second chance. And
1: actually Susanna, that exact moment that you're describing is critical because this population is the most easily exploited in so many different ways, but they're extremely vulnerable. They don't have any, um, resources to manage it on their own. So they end up relying on some kind of system of support. And um, even that was one of the main reasons why I was so emphatic about keeping in my business model in the early years, because um, people that are in transition, especially at the bottom of the totem pole from a work-life standpoint, temporary construction labor, they're the most easily exploited. And so I thought, how can I dignify that and make sure that from the very beginning, they feel a sense of engagement and purpose and belonging because even the way day labor temp agencies are structured, they make the people that, that they send out to work every day disposable by paying them out on a daily basis, which doesn't have any sense of cont- continuity or longevity or relationship. It's a, um, you're, you're using someone as, nothing more than a dispensable item. Yeah. And so I, I really you. wanted to start. That was my big thing to not perpetuate that sense of being able to, you know, at the end of the day, wash your hands of people. It's, and actually we still have a lot of that, by the way, I just want to say this last thing, because in the world of um, race to the bottom and pricing, and <clears throat> I can get a guy for cheaper and we can get our labor at way less of a cost than that. I think that I avoid those places like the plague because they're invested in perpetuating exploitive practices and I don't want anything to do with it.
0: And they don't have your values or your philosophy. And okay, so this is the thing with you, Margo, you know, it's so easy for you to just talk about what you do. Now I'm gonna make you talk about yourself. So extract yourself and go back several years, several years. And start maybe with your story. And it's what you said to me the other day. You said, Susanna, I had the best view of Casco Bay. So let me just also say, before I let you talk about that and how this all came about, what your call was the heroine's journey, right? People start out wherever they are, it could be their comfort zone, they're living a life with looking out on Casco Bay, perhaps, I don't know. And then they get some sort of a call. And the call can be pulling the rug out from under you. It can be an inkling in your head that I want to do something. It's something that inside or externally gets you to be thinking about, whoa, I need to do something different. And answering that call sets you on a new course uncharted water doing something you've never done before into the unknown where all kinds of things can happen and it's that journey that makes you into a the next iteration of yourself and we go on many of these in our lives right Mm -hmm. and so i want you to tell me if you could just use that sort of where did i start and just make note that at the end i'm going to say okay so then what's next margo you've been yeah. on this journey for 10 years so so all right best view of casco bay was that your comfort zone no and <laughs> <clears throat> but it had been what i was socialized
1: to believe would be the ultimate apex of having arrived right however i have to reconcile that with the person that i've always been which is someone that has felt like a cat in the bag since I was a child. I ran away when I was four. I couldn't couldn't take it. I couldn't take the structure. I couldn't sit in school. I couldn't listen. I couldn't attend. I couldn't, and I did beautifully because I came from a beautiful family and I was put into all of these amazing situations where I was able to thrive. I was given the choice of education. I was given the choice of all sorts of athletic outlets. So I was, um, despite my discomfort in myself, I was able to continue along this very um, clear path of education, athleticism, summers, teaching, sailing, all of those things. But at the same time, I always felt like I didn't, something wasn't clicking. And um, that I think is more universal than we like to talk about. But anyway, what I found when I was 15 was the feeling of wine. And that is a calling in and of itself that says, it's the, um, for to keep along the heroine's journey, Susanna, it is the siren on the shore, it's singing the praises and saying you're awesome and you've got this and you can do it, and it brings in all the sociability and um, it's lovely and um, you know the bottles are beautiful and um, it's all very um, upper crust. And then I went into the world of banking and investment banking and got married, all with wine, and wine and champagne, and loving that feeling of being other than or washed over. It wasn't me anymore. It took off all the edges. And so the journey began for me, really, when I was shipwrecked. I went for the siren song, and I got shipwrecked, and I ended up in a detox in Portland, Maine in 1997 because no one wanted to hang around with me anymore. I was the last one at the party and all the other behaviors that go with being um, an active alcoholic. And so in in 1997, I went reluctantly um, and I was horrified by the company that I was surrounded by in rehab. And anyway, went through that and it was the broken open needed to be at that rock bottom place before I could find anything true and it has only been that since but that's what made me even more um conflicted by my casco bay view and because it came after I got sober and had children and had everything again I was back on the path of everything looking fine on the outside and so when the ultimate was I finally got divorced because my husband and I met when we were children. I mean, I was 19. And so we just, I needed everything to reset. And I reset in 2010 by starting the idea of Mainworks. and it was about
0: self-reliance. And so one thing I wanted to have you make sure you talked about because when you talked to me about this earlier, you said, there I was then after this divorce, the, the person, the heroine with her little, all her belongings wrapped up in her handkerchief on a st- stick on her shoulder. But one thing I had, Susanna, you said, and what was that ability? What was your superpower? Connecting people. Yeah. That was the only thing I could really do
1: well. And I, it came from all of those years and all of those experiences of, being a conduit, but not neither being here nor there, but I could always connect and be that conduit. I was like the gray matter, I think. And I loved that position because I could take it with me anywhere. I really could. I could, um, you know, in recovery, a lot of people talk about the chameleon, the addict as a chameleon, as someone who can thrive in any situation. And that was Absolutely my case. Like I would went on an outward-bound course with cowboys and felt right at home with that. And I also could, you know, walk the Monet clad halls of the investment bank that I worked for, literally with priceless antiques and rugs everywhere. And I I felt like I could always find a way to connect people um, of all sorts of backgrounds. And so I love that. And so Susanna, that was my
0: that was in my handkerchief. That was all I had. That's all I so, and as I understand it, that's what you had been volunteering in the prison mm-hmm. and that's what got their connecting ability, yeah. got you the, the thought that the call to, oh, I could connect these people with yes. jobs, people who are looking for workers. Yeah. And yeah. I, um, I kept saying
1: they have to be a felon. And so that was my business model, which was ridiculous actually in retrospect. But I said, I, I stuck with it. I said, no, in order to work at MaineWorks you have to have been in jail. And in Maine, um, a felony might not, and you might not end up with a felony if you're only doing a shorter sentence. But um, in other words, everybody that worked at MaineWorks had to have the feeling of the gate closing and having been incarcerated. And so, in, and, and there was nowhere else in the world that has that was predicated that the employment structure, unless it was a nonprofit for prison reentry, no one else in the world had a private company where the requirement for employment was that you had to have been incarcerated. So right. it created a little bit of a, it, it was, is. I felt incarcerated in my own life. So I could relate
0: in a weird way with like the lack of freedom. So, Margo, heroines on the journey encounter a lot of criticism, and we call this the threshold guardians because Mm -hmm. they're like, no, stay here with us. You know, you're threatening us by what you're doing and you're crazy. And so what did people must have been? Oh, oh, Susanna, I have
1: a woman that I can point to and I won't, but she said, "Um, if if Margot's company is providing your workforce, I don't want those people in my backyard. I don't want a felon working on my pool, literally. And um, so I was—I took—I was so that that came with such indignation on my part because I thought, you know, how dare you? But I understand people's fears, and I guess that was another part of my calling was to help people process the fact that in our United States of America, in our system of jurisprudence, if you have done your time, that you should not have a life sentence but it is a life sentence. If you get arrested for anything and convicted, because people with money rarely get convicted, because you can always dance around it unless it was really, really um, you know, grave, whatever you did. So the whole legal system in this country anyway is based on um, entitlements, based on who can bail out of jail. If you can bail out of jail the night you get arrested, you will rarely end up Staying incarcerated for any length of time. So let's just get real about that. So I guess part of my um, message in all of this, Suzanne, and we've talked about this too, is now what is my um, swan song? What am I going to say now? What's in the in the final analysis? What do I really care about? And right. and I've had to continually do that.
0: Right. So when you think about it, ten years. And we haven't even talked about all the accolades that you've received and that you, there's a early June this month article in Forbes about you and you've been interviewed all over the place and won SBA awards and bigger than that, right? Um, as you've navigated, not, as you said, not knowing what you were about, but you know, keeping these principles and values. So you have evolved wouldn't you say, from that woman 10 years ago. And so what happens with that is that you have a a new stage to talk to, you have more influence, I can say you have more power. And so, yeah, now there's the now what question? What do you do with that?
1: Yeah. So I am really excited about the evolution in the past 10 years of this calling nationally and internationally to balance mission margin, that companies should be held accountable for their social and environmental impact where they exist, um, and that we should be able to quantify that. And then people will make investment decisions or purchasing decisions based on whether a company actually does with what it says it does. And so there's a whole world of impact investing that goes on now, which says we're going to consider our impact on society and humanity by the, by the investments that we make and how we, how we um, pay for things in the world. Um, and I think that that's a, a huge system now um, of impact investing. It's kind of what venture capital was in the, when everybody made tons of money on Wall Street back in the 80s and 90s. Now impact investing has become this really important thing that says, we will invest in companies that we believe in. We didn't have, our belief system in the 80s was profit, profits overall, right, money, right. right, capitalism. And now there's a conscious capitalism evolving that I really feel like main works is now being recognized. So um, we just won another accolade, but I can't talk about it until July 14th, but it has to do with being a B Corp, which is a for-profit company with a social or environmental impact Um, that you have to have measured it's really hard to get I can't believe I discovered it in 2013 because I was googling Susanna companies out there must care like Patagonia Patagonia does that they care about what they do and they um, allow their people to go surfing you know that's the ethos that I want to bring to my company and say how are we going what's our what is our common um, esprit de corps what are we who are we And so I think that there's a much more um, receptive market to all of
0: that now more than ever. So So I'm going to, and that's, as I understand it, that's how you exist as you, as the CEO of MaineWorks, and Elaine as the president of the Maine Recovery Fund. It's the for-profit and nonprofit working together. But before we just move off this, I think this is a good time because you talked to me about a cup of coffee You know, I said okay so how can people donate if they hear you and want to help you find the work boots and find the jackets and um, we go where we go to mainrecoveryfund.org and main
1: recovery fund has a incredibly impressive board of directors um, they are I guess it would be called a board in the nonprofit world. But anyway, um, the board of Maine Recovery Fund are wonderfully invested people who um, collaborate on setting the priorities for the organization. And strangely, Susanna, COVID has informed a lot of our decisions. And the big, um, the elephant in the room is people who are living close to the, um, close to kind of the, the minimum wage. How, do, how am I going to move forward in life? One of the biggest expenses and a really daunting reality is lack of transportation and I'm not talking about the little buses that go around you know delivering people to hospital visits and stuff those are really important they have their place but they also run from nine to three I'm talking about robust transportation availability to get people to work sites by 6am 7am alternate work like FedEx you know they have their own buses they bring people all around You know 24 hours a day they have to be able to deliver people we because owning a vehicle is really expensive and and overwhelming and and it's a luxury item and it's also the thing that the legal system takes first is your driver's license as a form of punishment so you've got all these people who can't get to work and i'm furious about it so that to me is the
0: big expense and that would be something if you know i think you said something like donate a much as much as a cup of coffee would cost you a day or something, and that would be helpful. And of course, as you're talking about a bus taking people to work, I'm thinking of the Google buses. But at any rate, I don't want to go there. But I think you have an opportunity coming up to talk to the legislators in our state and on our Senate mm-hmm. about how they could help you with that. Can you say a few things about that?
1: Yes, Susanna, thank you so much. So um, the What happened since I started Mainworks is that the opioid crisis exploded. Um, People were doing run-of-the-mill drugs and drinking when I started Mainworks and getting into trouble related to those sort of recreational drugs and alcoholism was the big one. But then gradually people started to die in greater numbers from the opioid epidemic, hyper-prescription of prescription pain pills, all of the different reasons people become addicted. And we dealt with this ballooning mushrooming um, crazy um, runaway train of um, opioid um, deaths. And the people who were kind of um, left to uh, be kind of accused of malfeasance during that time was the huge pharmaceutical companies, obviously. And you do hear a lot about extremely really bad like pill mill behavior. So that was a really important problem and um, got a lot of press and attention. So there are all these settlement monies now, the federal level has charged a lot of companies with these crimes of um, irresponsible prescriptions and blah, blah, blah. So now there was all this money coming in the form of these settlements and their federal money is being delegated state to state. And so how is your state spending their money? And it's a lot of money, it's billions of dollars. So the state of Maine got this lump sum and will continue to get lump sums but my concern is that the committee of people who are making the decisions about how to spend that money have more of a bureaucratic perspective rather than that from the streets. And what is really necessary when someone actually needs to stop using? And so I'm a little frustrated because I think that the only priority needs to be life saving. In other words, starting accessible detoxes that people can access on the same day, not sign up and think about it for another two weeks because you've lost your window. With an addict who wants to quit, it's seconds and minutes, not days and weeks. So I feel very strongly about that. But moreover, Suzanne, I think to the point is that the opioid settlements are being um, influenced by the opioid manufacturing companies and this medically assisted treatment reality that has a ton of money for marketing. So whatever the story is that has been told by lobbyists in Washington and all that, those stories are now just being perpetuated on a more granular level at the state level. And I feel one of my calling moments is to say, wait a minute, mm-hmm. is this really the best way forward? Are we just sort of listening to the, um, the, the organ music and just continuing to dance to that at a local level or should we be really thinking about this in a very meaningful disruptive way? Because there's no way forward that's nice and smooth as your point is Susanna, your heroine metaphor talks about being a disruptor in your own life, not just taking it as it comes, but speaking your mind, even when your voice shakes, that kind of listen to me. So maybe I have to say something like that.
0: Well, it's, it's you've been given the, the stage perhaps to be very impactful in the world of policymaking and you have the credibility you know, behind you. And so then I look at that and often I think this, when I look at people's and my own heroine's journey, you know, that you've been guided. These calls kind of come up perhaps from your soul saying this is where you're suited. We need you here. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. I wonder. accidental and it's so accidental and it is so arbitrary. And I love the story of um, the Odyssey. I love the idea of having left under duress and going out and meeting all of these, like the, the path that you talk about, Susanna, it's so important to me because um, no matter what, it's action oriented. There's no rest. It's not saying, and then you'll end up, you know, in, in the case of Homer, you know, he, Odysseus ends up back at Ithaca which is, again, about to go to war. So it's not like there's any restful place where we can all sit back and say, isn't this wonderful?
0: So you're more capable, you're more resilient, you're more powerful, um, you're more insightful, having been through all what Odysseus went through and what you went through. Um, I'm wondering, was there anyone? because we'll, we'll talk about the dragon, that, you know, breathing fire in your path, any dragon moments when you were really in the core of your belly scared for how you were going to go forward or because let me say this margo because there are women listening who are thinking oh my god i could never do what she's doing she's so brave but we know you weren't brave starting out this has been a learning experience so were you ever afraid yes normal people all the time (laughs)
1: all the time, especially for my kids, yeah. because I I really moved them. When the for sale sign, I'm going to cry, went up in front of the house that had the beautiful view, I thought I, I could have kept with this. I could have just put myself back in the box like a jack in the box, and I could have just hoped that I could keep the lid on this and go through the motions of this and not be able to afford anything and all the crap that was going on. And so the moment, and also my son who um, is neurodiverse, the idea of seeing a for sale sign in the front of the house, the disruption that that represented in his life was um, almost cruel that I would do that. you know, I, I have to be realistic about that and say, but in the end I could feel that, and this is for women that are trapped because in the end, the jack-in-the-box. Well, the music will start to play. It's inevitable. You can't stay in there forever. You have to come to terms with the difficulty of balancing the, the stress of staying with the lid on and the um, trauma of being freed from the box. Right. Go forgetting the free, be, being freed from the box, freedom from the box will change your entire life. And it is the only way forward, as difficult and as wrenching as it is. And so that to me, Susanna, is, is really, um, I, I had to pull up stakes. I had to pull up socially because getting divorced, women are considered the outsider all of a sudden because you're, you're breaking the construct of your social groups. Everybody expected you to be paired off not now this threatening presence, this woman who's kind of single, think about what that implies, right? So, oh God, it was terrible. And I really, really feel for people who are in this moment, but you've got to just look beyond the um, the constraints and go for, just get out of your trapped place first. I love, forward, I love
0: your jack in the box metaphor, it's perfect. And I think this is gonna help a lot of people to hear this. Yeah. And I agree with you having survived a divorce as well but I think it would be good to mention at this time because you were worried about your boys your two boys
1: yeah
0: but tell us how it all happened with your older son and what he's doing now oh my god Suzanne I didn't even I can't even
1: think about it in those terms because it was such a trauma. So I spent my whole life with my two boys and we were the constant, the three of us, we did stuff together all the time in my minivan, which became the minivan conveying guy inmates around. And I used to bring the inmates with me to drop off the, my kids at school and pick my kids up. So these wonderful people became part of the fabric of our experience collectively. And my son- Uh, the older one Jack um, when he was in high school at the time he used to drive guys around also when he first got his driver's license he'd pick guys up at the jail and bring them to job sites pick them up bring them home so now years later and the one other fear moment that I've had the several fear moments I've had Suzanne is that I'm not a business person I don't know how to do profit and loss I don't know how to do anything like that and so I was relying on the assistance of strangers that I didn't really know that well that had been referred to me but um there was so much crap going on with my bookkeeping and bookkeepers. So I want to just caution people that you've got to really be confident about that. Ask your bank to recommend people. And um, anyway, my son went off and lo and behold, he got a degree in finance against his wildest expectations. Never expected that. And then back he came to Maine and now he's the director of Maine Works. Really, I have to say of all Maine Works, because I now have a more kind of a pedestal ro- role and do a lot more of this bigger picture sc- stuff than the actual day-to-day operations. Between my team on the ground, I've got my son, Jack, who's amazing, running and doing financial analysis, running the books with our wonderful bookkeeper and then our director of operations. And just to further, we the way we're organized now at MaineWorks is a spoken wheel model. So the spokes are these different locations and the hub is MaineWorks in Portland, Maine. So we can administer um, the business from Portland, Maine, and have branches as we do in Manchester, New Hampshire. And now we're just starting in Massachusetts with a Connecticut um, opening by the end of the year.
0: So wow. it's kind of exciting. Yeah. And I think and, you're like in the millions right now as far as what you're making. And yeah, the
1: revenue is really great. And the thing is, um, you know, we had this great rec- nice recognition in Forbes. And wow, how cool to have a company for 10 years and go from making $200,000 in the first year to 200, 2.5 million in the 10th year. That's 10X, that's sort of the traditional trajectory of any company that's um, that didn't close in the first few years, which is what most companies do. So wow, this is great, except the expense of our business is really overwhelming. So our profit um, for anybody who cares about this is always in the low um, double digits or, you know, 10% or less or whatever. So it's not like we're making millions of dollars ourselves by any means. And in fact, now we're challenged with how much of that can Maine Works give back to Maine Recovery Fund for having helped us through those difficult years. Cause you only start moving away from being reliant on the bank after six or seven years. No one comes out of the gates making money and not having a huge expenses and huge debt So we're just growing up, starting to.
0: So I'm realizing I'm needing to bring our conversation to a close, but I want you to talk about one more thing for me. And that is something that I discovered right away when I started learning about you and Maine Works is you have this unusual... um, ritual or circle that happens every I think it's every single morning what is that about can you tell us what that uh, is Susanna that's the essence of Maine Works.
1: and unfortunately during COVID we haven't been able to do this but the way we would do recruiting was we would just say to people if you're interested in working you need to show up at Maine Works at 6 a.m. we will provide you with the boots and the coats and the outerwear and everything oh. you need but you need to be at the office at 6 a.m. It used to be at the Sunoco parking lot and you know we've moved to different places, but now we finally have a small office with a backyard and we decided let's get a fire pit and let's have everybody gather and hang around and wait to see what their assignments are. And they can all stand around the fire and just chat. And oh my God, that took a shape of its own because the need was so acute for gathering. And the need to be around the warmth of the fire because we you know we're all four seasons and then the fire became a metaphor we have one guy from south sudan who was a um a refugee actually and he now is, has been here for over two years working at Mainworks. such a beautiful person but he said in my village where i'm from um we gather around the fire it's a place where everything happens in our village and at night someone tends the fire all night to keep the wild animals away. Hmm. And we communicate there and we, we govern there and we, we live there. And I could feel in this nascent period of life for these young people who had never felt connected like I didn't with the cat in the bag feeling. Now they have a place to come and literally become transformed in their ability to connect We would go around the circle every morning and say, say your name and where you're from and say it with conviction and hold your chin up, like all these things that like your mother would have said years and years and years, but maybe you'd never had that. So it became this instructive, reflective place. And we still, now we're just going to go back to it starting really soon after COVID, but it has been such a difficult thing not to have that because it is the DNA of this organization, connection and purpose and that's really all i have
0: to say that is i think the best place to be done because it's so and i know that you are there every morning with your cup of coffee and yeah Yeah. so Margot, thank you for what you're doing for how you're contributing for um being the heroine on your your own heroine's journey as an example to other heroines they're going to get so much out of this but Susanna, you've brought this to light
1: in a way that I never thought about. And I also really appreciate how you reminded me that it is a journey. It's not a destination. It's not an event. There's no there's no finished. It's just keep going and keeping open, open-hearted, open-minded, wide open, eyes wide open, so that you don't miss this amazing thing that could be right outside your door or your you know, right beyond the best view in Portland. It's <laughs> just <laughs> like, oh my God, what a paradox. Thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. And See I you hope Susanna. we can talk with you again sometime on this podcast. Thank you, Susanna, for everything. All the best. See ya. Thank you're you. Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Did you leave? I le- I, I'm here and I'm stopping.